Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hello and welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. I'm Laura Kerr, Speech Pathology Australia's Senior Advisor, Mental Health and Trauma, and I'm recording today from the lands of the Bunurong people of the southeastern Kulin Nation. Speech pathologists working across a range of settings are seeing increasing numbers of individuals with mental health needs on their caseloads. Today's podcast episode is targeted at clinicians working in non-mental health specific services who practice in a variety of areas, including early intervention, education, disability, rehabilitation, justice and private practice, who would like some support in identifying and providing responsive care to clients presenting with mental ill health. So joining me today are Kerry Holland and Jess Carpenter. Uh, who are both senior speech pathologists at Peninsula Speech Plus. Uh, This is a private practice providing allied health services on the Mornington Peninsula in Melbourne on the lands of the Bunurong people. Kerry has worked in education and public mental health services throughout her career. She has worked across adolescent inpatient, day patient and community CAMS teams as both mental health clinician and speech pathologist. She has held senior positions as Senior Clinician Coordinator and Discipline Senior Speech Pathology throughout her 17 and a half years in public mental health. Kerry is currently working as a team leader in private practice and continues to support children's communication in school and preschool settings. She's passionate about advocating for young people and their families to ensure they receive appropriate supports. We also welcome Jess today. Uh, Jess is currently on maternity leave, so it's really wonderful she could um, take some time away from her bub to to join us today. Uh, She works at Peninsula Speech Plus with Kerry, uh, and she's a senior speech pathologist as well, and she works with clients across the lifespan. She supports a lot of clients within the autistic community with their communication. Jess trained in the UK and worked in the NHS as well as in a young offenders institution before moving to Australia, where she's been for the last four years. Welcome, Kerry and Jess. Thanks for having us, Laura. And um, both Jess and I join you from Bunurong land today too, which is fantastic. So we're really looking forward to chatting today about all things mental health and speech pathology, I guess. Excellent. Let's get into it. So... Can you tell us what are the mental health needs that speech pathologists practising anywhere are likely to see? Everybody has mental health and um, children, adults, anybody that is has been referred to speech pathology um, is likely to potentially have some form of mental health difficulty because of, they have a communication difficulty. Um, doesn't need to be something... Um, that is diagnosed, such as depression or anxiety. But if you can't articulate yourself, you can't understand, you struggle to express yourself, potentially there might be a little bit of anxiety there. There might be some low self-esteem. And I think something that we're seeing a lot of in private practice, we're seeing a lot more really complex clients, um, a lot of NDIS clients. And so... um, as well as the mental health needs that are linked to, you know, articulation and language, we've also got potentially a lot of trauma um, there that might be diagnosed, might be undiagnosed. Um, and so I think it's really important for anybody that is a speech pathologist, is trained to become a speechy, that they are aware that every client has the potential to come into a session with some form of mental health need. I think potentially the biggest uh, challenges we see for particularly the young people entering our practice, uh, a certain level of anxiety would be far the highest um, sort of presentation, as well as what would appear to be behavioural concerns. Although if we sort of dig a little deeper, um, the behavioural concerns are usually anxiety, some sort of anxiety based. And 
you would also see similar sort of presentations with those young people presenting with um, attentional deficits um, or some kind of attentional uh, challenges. Um, we do see probably, high, again, some level of anxiety with those young people. And I think we see less of, um, well, I guess in our adult populations, we, we do see some more uh, swallowing difficulties. So increased, um, you know, management with dysphagia, you know, it really increases the risk, you know, when you're looking at safety and as well as lifestyle uh, challenges uh, that it impacts um you know, overall quality of life um, when you've got some ongoing dysphagia management. So for those of our teams and those, you know, clinicians in other practices where they're managing dysphagia in, in outpatient communities, they're potentially going to see a level of anxiety or depression or, or you know, to a lesser or greater extent for, for those features. I mean, we see quite an interrelationship between mental health and communication and swallowing needs. Yeah, I think it's important as well to acknowledge the mental health of parents and carers as well who are coming and, and siblings as well. So it's not just um, the client, the patient, it's the whole family. Um, and that's something that a lot of the time, you know, you really want a parent to be involved in a session, a parent, a carer, a grandparent, whoever is going to be working really closely and supporting that client and sometimes you pick up on things that the parent is saying um, and actually it's not necessarily the client's mental health but the parent's mental health that we've also got to to be really conscious of too. Yeah, I think we have many families. Like uh, there, there's a number of, um, I know personally I've, I see a number of siblings within one family mm-hmm. um, and I wouldn't be the only clinician in our practice either that, that see, you know, see multiple siblings from from one family so there's certainly um, communities that we support have multiple you know factors impacting on on their um, mental health well-being. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Now you've touched on this a little bit but how do mental health needs relate to communication difficulties? Is there sort of like a bi-directional relationship or does one sort of come before the other or how, how do you sort of understand how they're connected or, or related? I guess it's quite a complex relationship and it can go either way, but it's mm. also, you know, a really sort of, um, you know, interrelationship, I guess, as well. So we know that by having a communication difficulty may lead to um, some mental health difficulties or challenges with particularly anxiety and depression around, you know, the limitations that your communication um, difficulties may may put on you being able to express your needs opinions thoughts um, being able to socialize um, if, if that's impacted then yeah your, your quality of life may be impacted so we may see some um, increased anxiety or depressive type um, symptoms we know that if you if you're highly anxious and or if you're quite depressed it's really hard to actually express your needs it's, it's really hard to um, interact with uh, others you may have um, you know as a result you may have reduced eye contact because who wants to look someone in the eye when you're not feeling great um, amongst other things I guess but it's it takes all it may take all all you've got each day just to get out and about let alone communicate effectively with others I think we also know that anxiety really impacts our thinking, our cognitive um, um, aspects of communication. So when we're in a in that highly anxious state, then we, you know, those executive functions um, really shut down. Our, our, our we have other um, our brains have other things to do. They need, they need to keep us safe. They're in, on high alert um, and so communication and, and thinking takes a second takes second place. So they're kind of inter, intertwined. Sometimes they're a little bit a bit difficult to um, separate, you know, whether one led to another. But it's something you do need to keep in mind around the impacts either way. Yeah, definitely. I think it's – and it's that it's not that, you know, people won't communicate. It's that a lot of times they just – they can't. <laughs> 
Um, and I think it's really important for people to acknowledge that um, and that when you see um, behaviors in a session, a lot of the time it's not about you. It's about that person that's experiencing that behavior. So it's not, you know, oh, they didn't like the session. They don't want to come. It's they're dealing with something really, really difficult. Um, and so it's important to to understand why that behavior is happening. Because as Kerry was saying, it's also interlinked. Yeah, I think we look at, if we look at even our DLD community um, or DLD population, I should say that we know that um, our adolescents with DLD have more symptoms of anxiety than, than their peers without DLD. So it would appear that having a developmental language disorder does increase your, your, the risk doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it certainly increases the risk of having um, having anxiety symptoms. You know, having to constantly, um, you know, work around uh, your neurobiology to access school, mm. to access social communications, um, to to carry out everyday activities is, um, you know can be challenging yeah I really like the spoon theory and I think every this applies to everybody if you're going to use up all of your spoons on things that are really difficult in the day potentially by the time you get to a speech therapy session you've got no spoons left and um you know are you going to go into your fight flight freeze or fawn mode um and I think that's the really interesting thing is you know you might see that somebody um is referred to you with it says anxiety but you have no idea how that anxiety is going to present in that individual and just because you've met a 15 year old last week who might be autistic and it says you know has anxiety and then the next week you meet a 15 year old that's autistic with anxiety does not mean they're going to present in the same way um it's very interesting when i used to work in the young offenders institute that you would just see all of these teenagers um, and they would, I had, yeah, you would think mostly fight, um, but there was a lot of, you know, a lot of freeze and a lot of flight. And um, it's just important to see that person as an individual as well, rather than just that kind of diagnosis that comes in on a case history form. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's certain sort of mental health presentations too that will inherently have some communicational language aspects associated with them. So if we're looking at, um, you know, psychosis, any of the the illnesses with an element of psychosis, we may see some uh, language um, impairment there as well. And I think when you're looking at thought disorder um, as a part of a psychotic process, it really does look quite different to what we see as um, disordered language in a, I'm going to say a typically disordered, <laughs> but what we might see in, in a language disorder, a DLD um, kind of presentation um, where, um, you know, thought disorder in a psychotic presentation is really, is really marked by significantly low cohesion um, in um, you know relating ideas to one another whereas within our language disorder population we might see some disordered syntax we might see some you know uh, restricted vocab um, and more simple com more simple sentence structures as opposed to you know thought disorder is something quite um, quite different and it's quite unusual when you when you hear it it's quite confusing I think too so um I think when the first time you come across a really, really clear-cut thought-disordered person, it's it does jump out at you in 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 so far as the conf- the confusing nature of it. So it's quite separate. But again, it's a language feature of um, of psychosis. And I think too, you know, as I mentioned before, around dysphagia and swallowing management, um, you know, we you may see if um, some adults with sort of long, long-standing mental health presentations and of schizophrenia and whatnot, that swallowing problems do become, may become a feature, and, but they also may be um, related to um, side effects of medications that they may be taking. So it's really important to consider 
um, all aspects of the client when when they come in and and thinking about well if if you know that about them what sorts of what sorts of impacts might it, might there be on their communication as well as swallowing um, swallowing function. And Kerry, I guess that speaks to the importance of speech pathologists um, working collaboratively with other professionals who might be involved with the the individual. Um, you know, if they've got a psychologist or they might have an OT or maybe they're linked in with mental health services. Um, and in order, you know, one, the speechy can assist with any differential diagnosis that might need to happen, you know, separate, separating out those features, you know, you know, is that um, features of autism or, or, or are we looking at, um, you know, the negative symptoms associated with psychosis um, or maybe, um, you know, the, the withdrawn anxious presentation that you might get um, in someone with communication difficulties versus someone who's really depressed and withdrawing socially, you know, it can, um, or even in something like selective mutism and, and trying to work out what, you know, if there's a, a language um, difficulty sort of underlying that, the selective mutism, which we also yeah, know yeah. is associated with anxiety. So, um, yeah, I've had to say sometimes mm. um, when people get referred to us, um, you know, their children have selective mutism and they don't have a, they're not seeing a psychologist. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, the, the GP or whoever has gone, go see a speechy because they're not speaking. But actually there needs to be a psychologist working just as much with that person as a speechy is. Um, and, you know, don't, I think it's imp- like you said, when there's mental health needs there, there needs to be a whole team approach. Um, and it's really, really important that we are all on the, you know, the same page. Yeah, ideally you could, you know, you know, doing multidisciplinary planning um, around working with um, a particular person and their families would, is, um, we, we often get, get opportunity to do that. But then I'd say it probably doesn't happen enough. Um, and we, just the nature of our practice, since we are a multidisciplinary practice, we do co-treat occasionally. So that allows um, in some respects the speech path and the OT to have a, you know, really work together around what are some really good regulating um, techniques and to have a look at some some aspects of, you know, the child or young person's behaviour and, and, and the underlying um, challenges, as, challenges, whether they may be sensory communication um, and, and how we might help support support them that way so whenever you can it's always great to be able to see see someone together but it it often is challenging a because of resourcing um b even just scheduling um can be really challenging Mm. as well and again people's funding levels might not really allow for that i think it's important isn't it to explain to families you know if they have a certain pot of funding why sometimes we need to utilize some of that for these types of non-face-to-face style therapy, you know, the, the, the meetings and the conversations, because if we don't really understand what's going on, then it's going to be really hard to make those sessions as effective as possible. Um, but it's, yeah, like you said, Kerry, it's, I wish we could do all of these things and it's too hard. <laughs> yeah. You know, best intentions, I guess, mm. and all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what are some um, red flags a speech pathologist could look out for in a case history that might suggest mental health vulnerability? I think everybody that yeah. comes in, <laughs> regardless, of, regardless of whether it says anything on their mental health, everybody um, could present or not even, they may not even present in the session as having anything, but I think it's just always important to be mindful that at some stage throughout their journey with us, there might be mental health. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the the fact that they're presenting is a one. Um, I think we have to be really mindful in our 
and careful in our in our case history taking to ask the questions really thoughtfully around the history of any mental health difficulties within the family um, and being really open when you're discussing this with the families about what that might um, why you might be asking that and don't just I guess make sure that it's within the context of, <laughs> of where of um, of where you're asking you know it, during that interview with the case history taking but it is really important to know if there's a family history and we also be really mindful of um, perhaps the um, postnatal kind of history of um, of, the, of the the parent looking at um, any history of postnatal depression or anxiety or postnatal psychosis um, anything that might uh, disrupt that early attachment might it may not but it's it's something there at the back of, of your mind to um, think about a predisposition but also just the disruption um, of attachment and and or or how the attachment has developed um, I think a known disability sometimes they're already referred in that we know that there's um, been a disability diagnosed there may be some kind of um, a syndrome it could be anything and that in itself we know that um, mental health presentations in people with disabilities is much higher than in the general population so again that's another another thing to keep at the back of your back of your mind I've also be listening for um, traumas and we're not talking about massive traumas it's perceived trauma well sorry that's a bit judgmental there isn't it but thinking about what the family tell you in terms of their experience of of perceived trauma um, and the numbers I guess when we're thinking about you know um, that multiple you know traumas and the the um, what that might mean for that person and I think we're hearing you know from a lot of um, parts of the disability community that just having a disability can be traumatic every time you're confronted with having to justify or manage or or, or, you know have some accommodation um, and support for your disability can also be you know they're really traumatic for for um, people and their families. Another thing I'd be really thinking about and keeping in the back of my mind is around family separations um, uh, for a variety of reasons and um, any of our young people who are in out-of-home care um, we know that amongst that um, part of our community there's also really high higher rates of um, mental health challenges so I guess we're looking at all of those things and, and um, they're potentially little red flags that we'd be, you know, popping aside. And I think any sort of expression or, you know, anyone reporting any kind of behavioural, um, uh, you know, concerns, I think that's probably number one or number two. I don't know. It's one of your big ones anyway to think mm. about. Um you know, I think we all kind of go, okay, well, what's behind that behaviour um, to um, to consider that rather than the behaviours themselves? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as well, going off, um, talking about when you first get somebody referred, sometimes, you know, that case history could have been really difficult for that person to complete. You might be the fifth person that they've had to now go over this with um and I think it's important as well that we think about if this is something we're going to talk about do we want to talk about this in front of that client does it need to be that we speak to the parent or carer first because I think sometimes people forget and a lot of the time you know if if you're a a teenager you're a young adult um you know you've there's a disability or there's a DLD or you know this that can be really awful to sit there and be talked about and people kind of go oh they don't understand. you know they're only little they don't understand but the, you know a lot of the time they do they know that you know they're talking about 
everything that's hard for them. And I think it's really important that therefore, if there is, you know, the child or the, the client is there in that session, we also talk about what things are you really good at? We don't want that person going away thinking, I'm never coming back here because all they do is talk about everything that is hard for me and everything that I can't do. So I think that first session, they want to go away thinking, yep, yeah, you know, there are things that I can't do, but I, I really want to work on also the things that I have strengths in. And that's really important too, to celebrate the things that they are awesome at. I think that's really important, Jess. It sort of leads into thinking about how um, we either as organisations but also individually um, practice in a trauma-informed way. So from the moment of engagement, you know, providing that safety um, and thinking about those principles of trauma-informed care of, you know, providing, um, you know, trustworthy and um, environment where you're going to be sensitive to the to the information that that our clients and families share with us seeking our own supports as yeah. well making sure that we look out for ourselves and and make sure that we have the, the best peer support and um, peer supervision mm-hmm. yeah definitely. And I think, yeah when we talked before about working collaboratively um, that's also collaboratively with the um, with the client and their family that we're helping to work with them and not against them or just do something to them <laughs> um, and you know that's those you know trauma informed principles are really important for how we practice day to day to keep those in mind um, and you know keeping in mind all those all those principles and and I guess with the empowerment we can probably lead into this Laura a little bit later around when we're looking at empowerment and choice you know within our speech pathology practice that really means providing them with the skills um, that um, that they need um, to be able to you know communicate to their you know their their best I guess. Mm. Mm. Thank you. So we've sort of talked a bit about the sort of case history, what you might look for in the case history. For speech pathologists in a session, um, they may or may not be sort of familiar with with the client. They may or may not have been working with them for a while. What what signs or what could they look out for or, or how might the client present that might suggest the presence of some mental health needs? So what what, what are some signs of speech you could look out for during their sessions um, that might think, oh, you know, maybe I need to, to think about this a bit more or, you know, respond in a slightly different way? Yeah, sure. I think we touched on it earlier around sort of that anxiety response where we, we might expect a fight or, a, you know, fright, freeze or flee response. So we may see a little bit of an aggressive response in the room with the way that um, if it's a younger child, how they interact with the materials um, and they may swipe things off the table, they might throw things, you know, there might be a number of different things. Sometimes see, you know, little ones sort of start hitting into their parents um, and um, or even, you know, potentially hurting themselves, biting onto the biting onto them themselves. I think they would be really red big red flags. The complete shutdown as well, where you're really not getting anything out of um, out of the person in front of you. And often the parent sort of starts to look a bit distressed and you see them going, come on, come on, you can you know that. But they're kind of like, oh I don't know. <laughs> I, it's just not coming out. Mm. Um, so it's I, I guess when we start to see these things, we we might see um, a really a, a reduction in um, not so much eye contact, but how they how their whole body is sort of oriented towards you. So quite a closed off kind of posture where they you know really don't look like they want to be there, um, and it's you know you may even be aware of some you know those real physiological and um, sort of symptoms where there's the flushing in the face where they're starting to go hot Um, you may not see the dilation of the pupils but you know you may start to see some of those physical um, and physiological responses to anxiety they're quite you know heavy breathing even um, in those you know 
more extreme where they might be going into a panic. Um, but they would certainly be very obvious, <laughs> obvious signs. Um, and you may see separation from the parent in the room um, where they might typically explore. Well, you can tell from the parent's response when they they might often say, oh, they're, they're pretty clingy this morning. They don't, they, they would normally, they don't normally sit like this on top of me. And you can see them trying to pop them off and, um, and kind of really mindful at those points to say, no, it's actually okay. You know, this is, I'm a stranger. The first time they've met met me, it's okay for them to be, be sitting with you. So I guess we see those sorts of things in the room and it's okay to acknowledge it and, and name it. Um, and and you know discuss and, and normalize it in some ways because yeah. I think that's one of the really big things is is kind of acknowledging it once it's out there say yep I would feel like that this is the first time you've met me um, and that's okay we we don't know each other um, and um, you know it's like it's okay for you to sit with mum and in fact mum can come and help us or dad or whoever's there with them um, that you know we're we're all here today together to um, to do whatever it is that you're doing. <laughs> it's it's um, it's being flexible to support them. Um, in you know, I've done selfs. I feel really. I used to say kelf when I was in the UK, and I feel really sad that I now say self. Um, um, you know, self lying on a beanbag, lying on the floor. We've done it in a tent. Um, we've done it you know like Kerry was saying sat on parents knee I think we need to really move away from this clinical sitting at a table um, you know even just thinking about your body sitting directly opposite somebody is that you don't know is really not great you know just sit sitting next to somebody so you're removing that eye contact that pressure of staring at somebody is is really important I've also had a couple of kids um seem to do okay in the session and then go home and just beat mum or dad up in the car so they've kind of done a bit of that maybe you know fawn I'm I'm being overly um engaged and then they've gone away and just then had a really big fight response um and so I think it's really important to check in with parents as to how they did after that session as well because it's not always you know how they present with you it could be what's happening in that half an hour, that hour later. Um, especially if we've got some kids that are doing a bit of masking, they might then just be absolutely exhausted for the rest of the day because they've just tried so hard in that hour. And it's important to let, you know, our clients know that whatever they need to get them through that session is fine. If they need a break, if we need to just do one subtest followed by 10 minutes of, watching YouTube, playing with a Rubik's Cube, doing some, you know, jumping jacks in the, whatever. I think that's, that's really important to, um, to help that child or client. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think when you've got those really, you know, concentration's going to be impacted mm. um, with any mental health presentation. So it's being really mindful of that, that the efforts that it will, um, will take to do some of what we're asking them to do is um, is really important and, and it means that we might need to chop and change and pitch things at the level that's um, that's achievable. Yeah. So I think you know, we have to think about, yeah, what we're doing, are we, are we actually making this too difficult? Yeah, assessments I think are really difficult, mm. um, especially, you know, another red flag um, potentially could be just that difficulty retaining any information, you know? And so when you're doing something like recalling sentences or following directions or some form of task that is, you know, using that working memory, potentially they're not going to do great in it because of that anxiety, because of that stress. And so when you're analyzing these results, it's important to really be mindful of that. Um, and the impact of the anxiety on how we interpret the data or data, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd agree, Jess. I think when we do look at any of those tasks 
of that require you know greater levels of working memory they're the, they're the areas that um, people are going to probably find the biggest level of challenge with and you know including those high level language type skills of that require inferencing and whatnot where you've got to hold information in mind and work with it so um, I guess um, too it's being really mindful that letting people know that these tests are going to get harder so as we go through the items are going to get harder and harder and that's okay um, because that's what's meant to happen so if you're finding it difficult at one point that's all right um, and that it doesn't you know we just say that it, it doesn't go it doesn't work against you but it gets harder and harder and harder and harder and you can almost see them relax in that moment like oh okay so this is what's meant to happen yep you're not meant to ace it um, it does get more challenging hmm. So what about, um, so that's sort of an idea of um, how individuals might present, say, during some more formal assessment. What about assessing functional communication within the context of mental health needs? How can the speech pathologist uh, do that? I guess it's the same way that you, you do it in any other, in any other way, like how you would typically do it. But you're keeping in mind the impact um, that, the mental health aspects uh, challenges might have on their communication. So you might have less eye contact um, and you would gauge that in over different environments about has it changed over time? So has their, has their nonverbal communication changed over time? So um, if we're looking at the impact of, of um, the mental health um, challenges, then it it will that that will change and um, they may be may have a greater range of nonverbal nonverbal responsive as well as uses um, when they were you know at a different time um, and we may see changes in those types of skills as their um, when they when anxiety is managed um, and, and depression is managed um, to to um, levels that are more manageable for the for the um, client and, and their families, so you wouldn't be doing anything different. I think we still use really robust measures of formal and, and observational uh, and dynamic assessment, but keeping in mind what the impact of those mental health conditions might have on on their communication. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, exactly like you were saying, Kerry, it's letting them know as well that we don't just need to, to talk to communicate. You know, if if you're having a really difficult day at work or at school, you can write things down. And introducing these alternative methods of communication. I've got a couple of clients. I've got one um, who um, has ODD. And so all of our sessions are done um, via teletherapy because he finds coming into clinic too difficult. And also some days he will... Um, you know, he, he, he will be really depressed and therefore won't want to talk. So he'll just type his responses to me. And it's, you can work with clients in different ways to support them. Sometimes he might be in a really good place and he'll come in and we'll do some face-to-face therapy, but it's letting him know that that option is there. If he still wants to, to work on his goals and improve his communication, we can do it in different ways. So we've talked um, about assessment. What about um, intervention? So you're sort of doing speech. You might be doing their therapy uh, with a with a, a client now. How might uh, mental health needs impact on their engagement in therapy or or ability to undertake sort of therapy tasks? It's really important to get the timing right. It it you might need to make a decision that right now isn't the best time. To intervene um, and prioritising um, other supports for a period of time may may be the right call. Um, but at the end of the day, you've, you've got to stick with your EBP. You know, we need to make sure that we're using the most um, evidence-based um informed treatments that we can that 
um, to on whatever whatever aspect that we're working on. And I think particularly, you know, when we're looking at those that really support and give voice to uh, our clients uh, in a way that reduces a heap of that cognitive load. When we're, we're looking at, um, you know, very overwhelmed um, brains that aren't really in that um, thinking space, that we need to be really mindful of how taxing the sessions are um, but also in, in all of our interventions, keeping them as, um, uh, um, as meaningful as possible, I think, is, the, um, is really important. And by meaningful, I mean, is something that they, they're um, really interested in, in targeting. So that's where your collaborative practice comes um, on board. So that together with um, the client, and or their family, that the targets are what the client's really invested in working on. If they're not, they don't want to be there. And mm. it, it's, again, you don't want to be, re, you know, mini traumas along the way. Um, we need to be working in that trauma-informed way around, is this actually in the person's best interest mm. right now? And in a session, uh, you know, as you're talking, I'm <clears throat> thinking about Bruce Perry's sort of upside-down triangle model. You know, he talks about how uh, sort of lower brain regions need to be sort of settled before, you know, um, people can access high brain regions. So, you know, they need to feel regulated and then connected to you. Well, they need to feel regulated before yeah. they can, can relate to you and, and, you know, they need to feel connected and that's where rapport building and trust building comes in. Mm. And then once they're feeling regulated, connected, then they're in a position to engage in those high level sort of reasoning language tasks. Um, I'm just wondering to sort of help pull it together, can you think of any examples of say within a session where you've needed to maybe um, focus more on that regulation part or the relationship aspect um, because they haven't been quite ready to engage in that that reasoning at that reasoning level all the time I think um, our clinic rooms are all fitted out with a variety of um, tools that could be used for for um, regulation um, and they may be things that we do together and I think co-regulating is one of the really big things that we can do. So it may be about, you know, even just abandoning the task and um, bringing it, having some other um, activities or tools up your sleeve to, um, to help support that young person. So it is, it is really important not to just continue blindly working on your goal because you want to get however many trials done in a session or you've got your session goal that you need yeah. to meet um it's it's really about turning that on on its head about well how are you going to meet their needs right now and it may be that you do need to build on that trust by acknowledging that that what's in um what they've brought um in the room with them today and and showing that trustworthiness that you you can hold that information and, and you can you can help support them with that. So we we use ROT support support us in lots of ways of how we can do that um, with the use of different aids um, through for movement. I've done a lot of stuff with kids standing up. <laughs> They're quite happy to the change in um, in focus when you can say to them, oh, yeah, it's okay, stand up, lean on the table. And the parent's stressing out and you're like, doesn't matter, I don't care, they could be standing on their head. Um, but suddenly they're still, they're engaged and they're focused um, and getting some deep pressure by standing and leaning on the table might be supporting, might support that. Yeah, and I think if you're, you know, you're, you're talking or you're listening, it's communication and ultimately that's what we do is we support people's communication. So, you know, don't feel like you've had a really terrible session if all, you know, you've not worked or achieved any of your, you know, goals for that session. If all you've done is build a relationship and trust and you've listened and you've talked, you've worked on communication. And um, I can't remember, 
I'm, I think there's some research out there that says one of the biggest, um, I don't know what word, I'm, I'm, as a speech therapist, sometimes my word recall is terrible. Um, the biggest indicator of somebody having success in therapy is their relationship with the therapist. Um, and so ultimately, especially if there's mental health needs involved, they got to trust you. Um, and um, oh, another thing as well, I think, is, is trying to be consistent with them. So if there's going to be a change at the start of that session, giving them as much notice as possible. If, you know, if, if you're not going to be there and somebody else is going to be there, do they even want to do that session? Um, it's keeping it as consistent and as, you know, expected as possible for them so that they do feel relaxed and regulated. Yeah, and same goes with timing of appointments. You know, if yeah. they've had a four o'clock every, you know, Tuesday, um, changing that might be, you know, might be really challenging. Well, communication is connection, isn't it? And that's sort of Absolutely. ultimately what it comes down to. So that that idea of relationship um, is really key, not just with the therapist, but with you know those um, around the individuals um, or in the individual's life. Um, and enabling their communication is enabling their connection with other people, isn't it? And we know that's protective against mental health um, challenges. It's protective against a, a range of a range of things. So, go speeches. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything we haven't covered that you would like to mention or let our listeners know that you think would be helpful for them to keep in mind, particularly considering a lot of them wouldn't you know, wouldn't be familiar with mental health, you know, per se? I I guess Jess and I, when we were sort of planning on, um, planning prior to the podcast, we kind of went, well, it's everywhere. It's speech paths are all, it's not new to them. It's, it's in every you know, we all have mental health. So everyone coming through our doors um, has the potential for, um, I guess, mental health challenges. Um, and don't be afraid of it. Um, don't don't think that you don't have a place in it um, and that, that's supporting it. And there are certainly – that doesn't mean you're actively working – on um, you know anxiety treatment or uh, or depre- you know treatment for depression, but what you're doing is supporting that client in the most informed way that you can. And and it, I would really encourage everyone to to go back and review um, trauma informed practice and and really thinking about those the, the you know the five six pillars of trauma informed practice. Um, and think about how you how your organisations um, are really mindful of that from the very first phone call through to um, you know how we are in in every session and how we promote that. So have a look at your processes um, and 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 your practices about how you do that. Um, but it's really not something um, to be scared of at all I think you know it's there we do have the skills um, and I think you mentioned Laura around you know relationship and communication uh, and 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 mental health they're 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 symbiotic you know that you can't you can't um, you can't sort of tease them apart um, and have one without the other so as communication specialists communications and and um, swallowing specialists we know that so be confident in your skill as a speech path that you've um, that you can manage this when when it becomes uh, you know when when you notice it in your practice. But also reach out to um, your colleagues, reach out to your um, other allied health supports, make connections with um, if you're if you're a sole um, practitioner, make connections with a local mental health network. Make sure you've got those supports. Make sure that you've got those supports with um, our, our OT colleagues and social work colleagues. There's many of them that have fabulous um, mental health um, um, qualifications and credentials So and lots to offer us. So if you're feeling um, not as confident, 
just reach out. There's plenty mm. of people that are willing to support. I think, yeah, exactly. And be mindful of your own mental health too. If you do get a couple of cases that feel a bit heavy, um, make sure you're getting that supervision, you're getting that um, peer supervision. Um, because again, you know, it's, it is everywhere, but also you've got to make sure that your, your cup is full and you can pour from it um, at the same time. So. Yeah, vicarious trauma is a real thing and burnout's a real thing in our profession. So we do need to be really protective um, that we're here for the long term. Thank you so much for coming and joining us today. Um, It's been really valuable having your your input and your perspective um, and I really um, hope that you know, speech pathologists working in non-mental health services have, you know, found this helpful and beneficial uh, and um, and can feel more confident, as you said, you know, going into their sessions um, and and knowing how to sort of maybe understand or respond to, to people who are presenting um, with some, some mental health needs. So thank you, listeners, for tuning in today. If you missed any of, um, of what we talked about, um, you can refer to the show notes for further information. Um, I might uh, pop a link to our Accidental Counselor Plus course in there that Speech Pathology runs. Uh, and, you know, you can access that yourself, one of our regular sessions, or you might like to organise some training for your workplace and you can just contact the association and sort of negotiate that. Thank you again to Kerry and Jess, and thank you all for listening today. Please tune in again next Wednesday for another Speak Up Conversation. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.